0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Here's a question for you today Have you heard of PFAS? The acronym stands for Per and Polyfluoroalkyl Chemicals. I know that was a mouthful, so to translate, these are a group of man-made substances sometimes called forever chemicals. And they're called that because they're so tough to break down and have been shown to build up over time in the soil, sea, and even in our bodies. They've been used in a lot of household and even body care products because of their slip-resistant properties. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, recently updated its standards around PFAS. The standards promise stricter enforceable limits that would require public water systems to add filtration or to find another source. So what will that mean in Connecticut, where water quality isn't uniformly monitored and where the advisory limit currently in place is double the EPA's updated limit? On Friday, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal announced $73.5 million in federal funding for Connecticut's cleanup, stressing that without federal dollars, the EPA's enforceable limits were
1: meaningless. Local and state governments need investment to take action. We can't just tell them, abide by the standards. We need to give them the investment that it will take to comply. And that's what this $73.5 million will help to do. More is needed, no question. First step, not the end, but it is a big first step.
0: And here to discuss all of that is Dr. Manisha Jutani. She's the Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Commissioner.
2: Thanks so much for having me. And just a
0: reminder for our listeners that if you have any questions, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, So, Commissioner, the DPH issues and enforces these drinking water advisory limits that we just mentioned, which were updated last year from 70 to 10 parts per trillion. And I believe federal officials have told you this is expected to be a three-year transition to meet the new standards which are to four parts per trillion. So I know I just threw out a lot of numbers, so can you help us understand that better, break it down for us?
2: Absolutely, so thanks for the opportunity to help clarify this confusing landscape. What we know, first of all, is that PFAS, these forever chemicals that you described, often have properties to repel water and are pervasive in so many products that we have in our society. and as you mentioned, Connecticut has actually been aware of this and addressing it for some period of time. That number of 70 was actually put in place in 2016. And then last year in 2022 is when we reduced that amount to 10 parts per trillion, as you were saying, is and this is primarily when we're thinking about our drinking water supplies. Now, the EPA, what they have signaled based on years of research that have gone into trying to identify the long-term effects of ingesting these PFAS chemicals. What they've done in March is announce that the enforceable levels that they would like for our water systems is even lower. As you said, for one of the main uh, PFAS chemicals, PFOS, at 10 parts per trillion. And right now, that particular ruling is under public comment. So people from the public can comment on this potential measure that'll go into place. And that is going to then close on May 30th of this year. And then after that is when over the course of the next several months and years, the rollout of these new enforceable limits would be put into place.
0: And so we'll definitely get into the processes in a little bit because we'll be hearing from um, Connecticut Mayor's investigative reporter, Andrew Brown, who explains in his reporting that one part per trillion is about a drop per 20 olympic size swimming pools. That's quite the analogy. So I want to ask you, Commissioner, you know, what are your concerns about contamination in Connecticut, especially you mentioned just now uh, in the long term?
2: So I think This is the type of situation where we need to be aware. We need to be vigilant and think about how we can address this. But we also need to recognize that the impacts are those that are longstanding. And so I do want people to realize this isn't something to uh, really be overly worried about in the short run, but it is something that we absolutely, absolutely need to take care of. And so I think what I think about when we look at our water systems is that these types of chemicals, as we've identified, are in so many different places in our society, but we're really trying to reduce the long-term potential impact that they can have. And that's why this reduction over the last several years has been very important so that our water systems can get into compliance and get into a place where we are protecting our public to the best of our ability.
0: And so with a lot of regulations and policies, we know it takes a long time or to take, take some time for it to be in place or for people to be more aware of. And the current advisories in Connecticut are ultimately recommendations. So is the language around these limits going to be changed as well as the, these processes continue?
2: Yes. So, so far, because, as I said, we've been aware of this problem and asking our public water systems to voluntarily report and test. We've had about over 150 public water systems that have been voluntarily testing and conversing with the DPH on what to do with levels that they identify, which has been great. But this is going to go up much more because with the EPA, our limits in Connecticut have all just been advisories, things that we're asking our public water systems to be aware of and try to get their systems in place. Now, with the EPA, once Those standards are put into place as an enforcement standard at a national level. Now, all of a sudden, this is not going to be a state by state process where every state is going to potentially have a different threshold that they either put as an advisory. This is going to be enforcement. And this is going to be something that's going to take some time to roll out, because as you said, whenever you have a new policy like this, you need to be able to do the things you need to do to get into compliance. And this, as you mentioned at the beginning of this segment, the investment that we have from the EPA coming to the Department of Public Health that we, in turn, are then going to be able to give out to our public water systems to get into compliance, to put in the carbon treatments that are necessary to be able to eliminate PFAS from the water, which is one of the great things to know is that we have a solution. We have a solution on removing PFAS from water. The issue is that we need to have our water systems have the mechanisms in place and upgrade their systems to be able to do that. So that is really where this investment in federal dollars is going to be a huge investment to be able to help our public water systems get into compliance.
0: And so, you know, we know we we, we just mentioned that currently testing means it's voluntary, unlike say lead or mercury. So can you tell us um, about updates to how widely these chemicals are tested for?
2: So, as I was mentioning, we've got about over 150 of our public water systems uh, right now voluntarily testing. And that serves about uh, 1.7 million people in our state. We've got 489 community public water systems in total that would ultimately be impacted. And then there are also non community systems to get to, you know, closer to the 3 million people of our state that would be impacted by this eventually. So about half of our population is in areas where systems are already starting to test and already starting to put improvements into place. And so some of the water systems already report this on their own websites so that you could potentially look at your own water supplier and see, are they sharing this information already with the public or not? And that's the difference with if this EPA rule now goes into effect, let's say, by the end of the year and rolled out over the next three years is that everybody would be required to test and report on those levels.
0: And so you told Andrew Brown with the Mirror that around 65% of community water systems were reporting PFAS levels to you. And with the policies that are ongoing, is the goal to be 100%? Absolutely.
2: So right now, we are doing this, as you said, on a voluntary basis. But if the EPA rule goes into effect, it will be mandatory. There will there will be no voluntary reporting anymore. And uh, that's a good place to be when it comes to a health threat so that we can actually make the impacts that we want to have for our population at large.
0: And so these epa enforceable limits wouldn't really apply to the three hundred thousand private drinking water wells here in connecticut is that a concern
2: so for those you are right that they will not necessarily be under the same regulatory authority but 98 percent of consumers are on regulated public water systems that would be affected for those that are not obviously the fact that this is something that has been recognized as a health threat will hopefully become more and more of a recognition and people will understand that this needs to be tested for. I also wanna just let people know that bottled water is also not immune from PFAS. It's not like the solution is necessarily to just go to bottled water. And our five uh, bottled water suppliers in the state, and that may not be all the bottled water that somebody could get off a shelf, But those that actually bottle their water in the state have also been required to start looking at these issues of PFAS. So, you know, we're limiting the scope and making it a smaller and smaller segment of the population that would potentially be at risk. But you are correct that not everybody would be under this regulatory authority. The good news is that 98 percent of consumers would be.
0: And I was going to say, because it's it's not everyone, as you just mentioned, um, right now. So is there a way that residents can check whether their water is safe? Or is this is this something that they should be concerned? Because we also don't want to be alarming, right?
2: Right, exactly. And I really do want to stress that fine line. What we're looking at is long term effects of PFAS. And that's not to undermine that those effects are not real. But I think as I mentioned, you can first of all, check with your, uh, your water supplier, whether they actually list it online and it's something that's easily accessible or, or contacting them and find out where they stand in the process to get a better sense of uh, where your water system might be uh, impacted. I think the other thing to note is uh, my understanding is that routine uh, water filters, water pitchers, do not necessarily remove PFAS. You need a little bit more of an elaborate system in your home um, at which those systems are a little bit more expensive uh, in several hundred dollars range. But those would be the kinds of things that people could do that could potentially reduce the risk even further if you were to, for some reason, identify that the levels are higher in a particular area where you live. So
0: uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal had stressed that we talked about federal dollars earlier, and so he mentioned that those dollars were to ensure water companies can get into compliance without raising rates for consumers. Do you have concerns about that, or what are your thoughts?
2: So I think that this first investment is a big, big step in the right direction, and I'm so grateful for our delegation that has been advocating for Connecticut at the federal level and has been able to help pass this bipartisan infrastructure law, which is bringing millions of dollars into our state to deal with PFAS, but also to deal with problems like lead service lines, which are the pipes in the street that bring ultimately then water to given homes and getting those old pipes that have lead in them out as well. And so a lot of this money is going to fund both of these projects. I think some of the problem that we don't know is because not everybody has been testing for some of these things or have an inventory for something like lead service lines, we may not know the full scope of the problem until people start doing that. So for PFAS in particular, what we're talking about now, as I said, many, many systems are already voluntarily testing for this and they're well on their way because the Department of Public Health has been sounding alarms on the health effects of this for many, many years now. But I do think that there may be additional investment that may be necessary. I think one of the best ways we can show that the return on this investment is to get started on the work. And that's what we plan to do this year in starting to give, a, give out some of the first set of money that will be able to fund projects to deal with PFAS directly.
0: Well, this is certainly not going to be the last time we'll be having this conversation. So we'll definitely be following up in terms of the processes. And of course, while we have you on, Commissioner, must ask a different kind of testing is uh, the latest recommendations you might have around COVID um, in regards to uh, boosters and vaccines.
2: So thank you for asking that. You know, we've obviously come a very long way when it comes to COVID. But one of the things we do know is that four out of five people who are eligible for the newest booster that came out in the fall have not received it. This booster is specific toward to all really all the Omicron variants that you've been hearing about. There are so many different Omicron variants and sub variants that you know, have come out over the last year plus. And getting that booster will ultimately be the best safety you have to reducing your chance of getting infected, reducing your chance of needing to go to the hospital or having more serious outcomes from COVID. So, I think what I would also advise people is that the newest subvariant of Omicron that people are hearing about may also cause conjunctivitis, meaning red eyes, which people often get with allergies at this time of year. And so, lots of people still have test kits. Many of your health departments may have test kits that we have given out as the department as we're trying to have people use these as much as we can before they expire. And I would just recommend, especially if you're somebody who's older or has any immunocompromising conditions and could benefit from antiviral treatment like Paxlovid as an example, that testing yourself and potentially getting treated, which is One of the biggest reasons to test also, especially if you're eligible to get uh, medication, which many people would be, that this is a way that we can help protect people, save them and protect other family members. So, again, just to keep in mind that if you haven't gotten a booster in the last year, you likely are eligible and there's no time like the present to get one.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Manisha Dutani, who is the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Thank you so much, Commissioner, for your time this morning to help us understand about PFAS and the latest update on the booster.
2: Appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much.
0: And coming up next, Connecticut Mirror investigative reporter Andrew Brown responds to our conversation just now and also a scientist heading up a PFAS-focused lab at the University of Rhode Island will be joining us. What are your questions for them? You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
3: So ECMO is
4: considered when treatments have failed, and in our center with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for
3: recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard from Connecticut Department of Public Health Commissioner Manisha Dutani all about how EPA updates to PFAS standards may change how those chemicals are monitored here in Connecticut. And here to respond and to help us understand a bit more about PFAS and how they're tracked is Andrew Brown. He's an investigative reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and also Dr. Reiner Lohman, professor of oceanography at the University of Rhode Island and the director of the Steep Research Center. Thank you so so much both for joining us this morning
1: thank you for having me thank you for having me
0: and for our listeners with questions you can also join the conversation call us at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on facebook and twitter at where we live So, Andrew, you're sitting here with me in studio today, and um, you've been listening to our conversation with Commissioner Dutani, and you've also spoken with her for many of your reports. So are there any thoughts that you have with what she shared this this morning, anything that jumped out to you?
1: I I thought that uh, her comments really just emphasize how big of an endeavor this is to um, require public drinking water systems throughout the country to finally start testing and uh, treating for PFAS compounds. Um, this has been a step that's been, you know, I think anybody who's been following this for a while, it's been coming for over a decade. Um, and the fact that it's finally here, it, it just shows the logistical um, tasks that will need to be, uh, you know, accomplished to get all of these public drinking water systems to comply. Um, it, it's a, it, it really is quite a um, large project. Um, that I think that's the biggest takeaway for me.
0: And so, of course, we've been talking about how these processes take time in terms of regulations and, and of course, education as well. And the commissioner also touched on this, just to be a bit more detailed. These standards are still forthcoming from the EPA, but would replace what were advisory limits to more enforceable um, policies. Can you explain that process for us?
1: Yeah. So um, my understanding, and again, I'm not a regulator, I'm not a scientist, but um, there are things in public drinking water systems that are known as maximum contaminant levels. Um, most often you, you would hear that word associated with things like lead and mercury and um, uh, other uh, heavy metals maybe that may be naturally found in, in water that needs to be treated for. Um, there has been no maximum contaminant level for PFAS even though um, for two decades the United States has really been grappling with this issue. Um, And so uh, up until this point, there has only been what has been referred to as health advisories. Um, The EPA in 2016 put in, like you said, the health advisory of 70 parts per trillion for some of the most common types of PFAS, including PFOA and PFOS. Um, Again, Connecticut put in um, kind of stricter um, rules, but they were still just advisories, just recommendations. What the EPA did um, earlier this year was um, a big move to finally set an enforceable standard in which public drinking water operators, whether they're, you know, your town who operates a municipal water system or it's a investor-owned utility like Aquarian, which serves water to Bridgeport, um, they're going to have to test their water for these compounds. And um, if they find them above four parts per trillion, they're going to either have to replace the source of the water or they're going to have to um, use advanced um, filtration systems to pull those chemicals out of people's drinking water.
0: And what would you say is next here in Connecticut? Is it more testing to to determine where remediation is needed as we sort of wait for these processes to be in place?
1: Um, Yes. So the the Commissioner of Public Health has told me that um, right now they're going through quarterly testing with all of the public water systems. They're in the process of getting ready to enforce the EPA standard, even though it's still in the rulemaking process. Um, So they are collecting every three months, they'll be collecting... um, uh, Sorry, every four months, they will be collecting samples from these public drinking water systems. um, And they will be determining after a year, uh, essentially, the average level of these PFAS compounds in the water systems to determine exactly which systems need to um, start treating and, and which, which systems need to adapt based on these new rules.
0: I want to bring in uh, Dr. Loman now, you know, can you give us an idea of what we know about why PFAS are harmful and maybe why it's taken some time to reach consensus for this kind of federal action?
4: Certainly. Thanks for asking. So, I think there are a couple of considerations. A lot of the health advisory for PFOA and PFOS or the most notorious PFAS are driven by a combination of they are being likely carcinogens that's why EPA has set a health goal of no exposure zero and then concerns about effects on the immune system particularly for children four other PFAS are also going to be regulated and there it's a mix of effects on metabolism immune system and so forth. So there's a range of effects associated with long-term exposure to these different PFASs.
0: And also, um, Andrew, I want to get your thoughts. You know, when we spoke to the DPH Drinking Water Chief Laurie Matthew last year, she was hopeful about forthcoming EPA standards, which is the conversation we're having today. Why was that so important for state action beyond triggering those very important federal dollars to get into this?
1: Um, I mean, Several states did enact their own maximum contaminant level for some PFAS, um, including some of Connecticut's neighbors. Um, but that's a difficult regulatory process for a state to take on its own. You have to back it up with, um, you know, toxicology research and and uh, uh, other evidence of of why um, you're putting in a, a limit on the drinking water. Um, so, like most states um, throughout the country. Uh, Connecticut was waiting on the federal government act. Um, there had been signals that the federal government was considering a uh, implementing an enforceable standard for PFAS and drinking water for some time. Um, and, and so having the EPA step in, uh, I think most environmental um, advocates and and researchers would say that's, that's the best thing that could have happened because now we have a, a nationwide standard, um, not just in Connecticut, um, but, you know, throughout the country um, and it it just makes it much more uniform.
0: And Dr. Lohman, you know, we've been talking so much about the EPA standards or the new EPA standards. How would you compare this to the slow process of identifying lead or mercury as harmful and the slower process of remediation? And do you think this new standard from the EPA for PFAS is uh, robust enough?
4: Yes. So it's EPA has been uh, under a lot of challenges, both within the federal government and from environmental groups. Clearly, there's a concern that a lot of the contaminated sites are military sites. So the Department of Defense has uh, vested interest in the outcome of the regulation. I think that was part of the discussions behind the scenes. There was, of course, concern of what can you reliably detect? So at what level can you actually regulate responsibly? I think that f- came into this determination of the four parts per trillion rule, because that's basically based on the level that regularly commercial labs can actually measure at. And then last, of course, was getting the science right, waiting for the newest insights from epidemiological studies, which have driven most of the uh, current proposed maximum contaminant levels. So I think all of that together, made for delays, but Maybe twenty years would have been a little too long. I think we could have, or we should have moved a little, little faster. Well,
0: I mean, you know, we're in the we're in the space now, right? Where we all know that lead and mercury is bad, but it did take time to get there. So, Doctor Loman, I want to ask you: know, in many ways, uh, is this how science works? You know, taking time to say with certainty that certain things are harmful or beneficial.
4: Yeah, that's a very, (laughs) yes, of course, you're right. Science in a way always stresses the uncertainty and more work needs to be done and more studies have to be performed. Of course, as a regulator, at this stage, you have to accept that you have enough knowledge that is sufficient to move on and make a decision. I think the problem and you have of course, stressed mercury or other contaminants is that the longer you wait, the more difficult and typically, the more expensive it is to actually act. What we've seen from mercury is that over time, and as more studies are performed and more insights are gained, that regulatory levels actually decrease because you realize there's more and more danger of exposure. And in a way that's what's already reflected in what we see for PFAS that over time the safe dose basically has come down and it's not even clear that this is going to be the last one, even though I assume this is the last thing the EPA is going to regulate in a while for PFAS. Then- but there's a fine line between saying enough enough is, or there's not enough and
1: time to act.
0: And Andrew, I've been seeing you nodding to what Dr. Loman is saying. You know, what do you have to say in response to what what we've been just talking about?
1: I think that if you have followed this issue for a while, and I've tried to, um, I, I think that when you know there there was a lot of criticism back in two thousand and sixteen. Instead of um, putting out the recommended limit for PFAS in drinking water of seventy parts per trillion, there was a lot of push actually to set a maximum contaminant level then. So um, I think what uh, the doctor is saying what um, is that uh, there are people and I don't I, I think there is legitimate criticism that this could have happened earlier instead of in 2023.
0: And just a reminder for our listeners that if you have questions to please give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We're now going to take a call from Joe who has a question. Joe, are you there?
3: Yes. I have a private well on my property but I'm serviced by public sewer so does that mean that um, my my water would be safe uh, you know seeing as um, you know my wastewater goes to the sewer and my water from the well um, Basically comes from rain and then and then goes into the ground, and then comes when I use it comes from the ground. So I, I don't know am I am I safe in that there wouldn't be any
1: PFAS getting into my system?
0: Well, thank you much. So- well, thank you so much, Joe, for your call. Andrew, can you take that?
1: Yeah. So you are going to be one of the people who is served by a private drinking water well. Private wells in Connecticut are not regulated in this fashion. The EPA rule that's being developed. Um, is for um, essentially public water systems, community water systems, which is serves um, around 20 people or more, 20 households or more. Um, so y- you are considered a private well, which means that um, testing for contaminants in your water is up to you. Um, you can hire private labs um, to conduct that testing. Um, but, you know, I- I've talked to public health officials here in Connecticut, and what they've said is with private wells, Um, You know, a lot of people don't even realize, even without PFAS, um, that there could be contaminants in their well um, that they need to test for. And and that includes, um, you know, uh, other heavy metals or or things that naturally occur in the earth that may be pulled into somebody's drinking water. So um, the EPA rule does not does not deal with uh, private wells that serve, you know, one house. Um, That is up to the homeowner and the person who owns that well.
0: And we're going to take another question from George in Ellington. George, are you there? George, are you there? George might not be there right now, and that is okay. So we're going to turn our attention back to Andrew still. Um, Some states had actually set their own enforceable limits. You've reported this in your stories, which includes New Jersey, New Hampshire, Maine, Michigan, and Massachusetts. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh there like I said this this issue has been um of you know a, a major debate for quite a time. Um in some states have had far bigger exposure um events than Connecticut has. You know, um some of the major exposure that has been talked about nationally is actually from air force bases. There was a chemical um laden foam that was used to put out jet fuel fires. Um Um, on many Air Force bases. And so there are drinking water systems that are near those Air Force bases that have very um, elevated levels of PFAS. Um, And so in instances like that, where it became uh, much more of a public subject to talk about um, these chemicals, um, state regulators, um, in the absence of EPA action... um, started taking their own steps to create maximum contaminant levels for their public drinking water systems. Um, And so you've seen those numbers grow. I believe New Jersey was the first one to take that step. Um, And other states, again, in recent years have, have moved to get ahead of that curve.
0: And Andrew, what do we know about legislative movements here this session? You know, on Friday, we heard from Senator Blumenthal and uh, Long Island Soundkeeper Bill Lucy alluded to the bills with uh, bipartisan support that would help with testing. You know, what are what do you know about what's going on with there over there?
1: There was a bill that um, originated at the beginning of this session in Connecticut. Um, uh, I believe it was Senator Kushner, Julie Kushner, um, sponsored that bill, and uh, it would create a fund to help municipalities who need to test for or treat um, drinking water. Um, The bill actually seems more targeted not towards public water systems, which we've been talking about, which would be under this EPA regulation. Um, It's actually what the caller was just talking about, um, which would seek to help um, individual homeowners with private wells um, to add uh, filtration systems so that their drinking water is safe. Um, and that bill made it out of the Environment Committee here in the Connecticut legislature um, and could be, um, you know, brought to the floor in the House and Senate at some point in the near future.
0: And we got about two minutes left, but I do want to ask Dr. Lohman, you know, can you give us a sense of what treatment looks like? Because generally this is a very long, complicated, and expensive process.
4: Certainly. So for the typical drinking water provider, the treatment would consist of granular activated carbon so big big filters with a lot of carbon there's typically two in series and there's testing in between so once the first one basically loses its capacity to hold the PFAS back then the second one takes over and the first filter is replaced that's the typical approach if you have a much higher rate of contamination you might go to more expensive treatment options there's ion exchange resins but typically for most situations big activated carbon filters will do the job
0: You've been listening to Andrew Brown, who's a Connecticut Mirror investigative reporter, and Dr. Reiner Lohman, who is the director of URI's Steep Research Center. We'll be continuing this conversation after a quick break. And if you have any questions about PFAS, give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. This hour is all about PFAS and how the man-made forever chemicals are being tracked where we live. And back with us to discuss it is Andrew Brown, who's an investigative reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, and Dr. Reiner Lohman, who is a professor of oceanography at the University of Rhode Island and the director of the Steep Research Center. So, Andrew, I want to bring this conversation back with you? You know, you've covered some of the litigation around companies that historically manufactured these chemicals. How could these new these new federal standards affect that litigation?
1: Um, Yeah. So I covered um, some mass litigation over uh, particularly the firefighting foam um, that has contaminated so many public drinking water systems throughout the country. Um, And uh, there is hundreds of lawsuits right now that um, are amassed in federal court actually down in South Carolina where I used to work. those uh, lawsuits are primarily targeting um, companies like 3M, which were um, a primary manufacturer of uh, PFOS, for instance, um, which is uh, one of the main contaminants that was found in this firefighting foam. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know where that litigation is heading. It's obviously a huge liability for those companies, um, but creating this regulation is likely to add to that. <clears throat> I can't think that it would do anything else because you're going to have public water systems that um, who thought they you know, drinking water was safe, who are now um, dealing with the cost of uh, upgrading their filtration technology and dealing with these chemicals. So, you know, that mass litigation that I referred to down in South Carolina, um, there is uh, many public water systems that are suing. There are attorney generals who are suing. Um, you know a, a bunch of other public affiliates who are trying to recoup the cost of essentially the environmental contamination that they are now um, forced to reckon with. Um, so I, I think that you know there have been investment analysts who monitor 3M um, and other companies that are were you know working in this field who have said that this liability could potentially um, climb to the level of an asbestos-related um, legal liability.
0: So we've been learning a lot about how this can impact the public. And, and Sarah on Twitter asks, what steps can regulators take to eliminate PFAS?
1: Um, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk uh, nationally from what I've read about, um, you know, what to do with uh, these chemicals in uh, cosmetics and uh, in food packaging. That discussion has also happened here at the state level um, with the food packaging, um, you know, I don't think many state governments are going to get into figuring that problem out. That would probably be more of a federal level. Um, what I can say is, uh, going back to the firefighting foam, Connecticut has already taken the broad steps to try to reduce exposure um, from that source. Um, in recent years, the state has um, created a take-back program um, for local fire departments um, to essentially get rid of the what is... It's commonly referred to as a triple F foam, um, and to replace it with a um, a different type of firefighting foam that would not have the PFOS in it. Um, so, you know, there are compliance steps that the state is trying to take on that. But it, these chemicals, like like you said, in the lead in, are ubiquitous. They're they're in a lot of different products. They, uh, you know, they obviously had a use. Um, in a lot of different things, including Teflon pans and waterproof clothing. So um, it's not an, uh, an easy step to start eliminating those sources.
0: And we mentioned Long Island Soundkeeper Bill Lucy earlier, who also spoke to the corporate liability at Friday's press conference. Let's take a listen.
3: This is exactly why we have these governmental institutions, because there are people who cause this pollution, whether on purpose or not, the courts are going to decide that and figure out how much they need to pay for their share of polluting our water. But that's going to take years. People need to get protected right now. And so the federal government's stepping in with these these excellent resources and yeah, this is a step forward. This isn't just a, a checkbox.
0: I saw you nod again, Andrew. What are you, what's your response to what Bill Lucy said?
1: You know, I it is a big step right now, but the I was nodding mostly at the fact that he was saying, you know, any type of litigation over this is going to take years. This is, um, you know, there's still asbestos. Like I said, there's I I've made the comparison to asbestos. There are still asbestos cases being filed in court. Right, that that litigation, the the, the initiation of it started decades ago. So, um, you know, the the federal courts are going to be. Filled with these lawsuits once um, the evi- evidentiary hearings are done, but you know, um, yeah, the lawyers are going to be very busy.
0: And and Dr. Lohman, uh, can you tell us about the Steep Lab and its role in the region? You know, are you also looking at Long Island Sound?
4: Sure. So the Steep, steep Lab is actually an acronym for we're looking into the sources, transport, exposure, and effects of PFASs, and our studies basically cover different New England states, focus was on Cape Cod, where there was a known um, AFFF, so a firefighting foam in the groundwater. And so we actually looked into private wells on Cape Cod. And luckily, most of them were fine with respect to PFAS, a couple were not. So it's always a bit of a chance you take with a private well unless you test. But we did some work, to and Matthew Dunn, in the poker attack. And maybe not surprisingly, there's a history of different textile mills. And there are some historical waste lagoons and those have high burdens of PFAS in them so there's a constant supply particularly when it rains of these PFAS into the river and I think that's the lesson we've learned with PFAS is they've had so many uses that they really show up in unexpected places and yes as was said it's going to take quite a bit of time to uh, minimize the impact
0: and we've been focusing a lot of this conversation on drinking water standards, but what are your concerns about our environment in general? You know, how does PFAS um, impact the environment?
4: Yes. Uh, of course, it's a little easier to perform medical studies on humans. You know, we can get their records and ask them about how they feel. And the environment's a little more challenging, but we know basically all top predators, be that polar bears or birds or seals have very high levels. I think there's evidence that it impacts them just as it impacts human in the long-term and in the environment, we know, um, let's take the example of um, shore birds. So um, great shearwaters, a student of mine looked at them, birds that always live off the coast, Massachusetts, and we find them in those birds just as much as birds that live closer to coast. PFAS are everywhere. They're basically in all big animals. So it's, it's a sad story.
0: And uh, it is a sad story. And I think everything is so connected with, you know, humans and the environment and, and animals that you just mentioned with nature too, you know. And so we we talked about the corporate liabilities too, especially since obviously that impacts us as well. And I know you're not focused on this as a scientist per se, but how does that affect the work you do?
4: Yeah, I think there's a little more scrutiny these days because there's commercial interests in... Um, preventing too strict strict standards. I think now that EPA has made their case, it's a little more difficult for the companies to say there's no evidence of effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of my colleagues on my PFAS team have been asked to submit all of their records, so Freedom of Information Act. And maybe that is routine for industrial partners, it's not routine for academics, so it basically slows us down. And it's a bit like a warning shot from certain industries saying, oh, we don't really want you to do too much work in this area.
0: And I know we we touched on this a little bit earlier, but what, what's your response to the new EPA limit in terms of how robust is four parts per trillion in your view, especially with your studies?
4: I think I was I was positively surprised that EPA came to this conclusion. It's roughly in line with what several New England states have instituted at this point, like Massachusetts regulated 20 parts per trillion for six PFAS. And if you do the math with EPA standard, it's not that different. Um, EPA made its case basically on combination of the health goal, which is to be as low as possible, but also have achieved something that is technically technologically feasible. And then also that can actually routinely be measured. So they came up with this compromised version of four, which seems appropriate at this point.
0: And Andrew, I want to talk to you real quick, too. You know, we've been talking about policies and regulations and, and water treatment, and and now we're at uh, the litigation portion. And wh- what can we expect next from litigation, you think, you know, um, with so many lawsuits that were combined? And like you mentioned earlier, so many lawsuits coming out. What do you think is going to happen next?
1: Uh. I think that there are going to be some uh, – there's going to be serious fights in federal court over um, exactly uh, what was being discussed right now. When is it dangerous for PFAS? Like what harm is being caused? That is still going to be litigated. It will be a harder road for these um, companies who used uh, PFAS because of things like the EPA regulations. Um, But I was in federal court in South Carolina a couple years ago where – Lawyers um, had experts on each side coming in and arguing over, um, you know, the relative harm caused by um, PFOS in particular. Um, so they're gonna, there's gonna be evidentiary fights over what the companies knew and when. Um, there's gonna be fights over what harm is caused, and uh, uh, you know, I would not be surprised um, if these things are allowed to start to head towards trial. Um, that you could see some major settlements, um, uh, just to you know, for those corporations to limit their their legal exposure.
0: We've got about a minute left, but I want to ask you. You know, you've been covering this for a while, and uh, with all the litigation that's going on, do you get a sense that companies who are still using PFAS are scaling back on production, or are you seeing a change through your reporting or just from your conversations?
1: I think that's beyond my ability to say. Um, I, you know, the EPA is starting, you know, not just with the drinking water regulation, but they're starting to regulate actual releases of some PFAS, um, you know, and requiring companies to essentially the toxic inventory release database, which is, you know, if you release this in an environment, you're going to have to report PFAS now. That was never the case before. Um, so I think we're we're still learning a lot of information that we probably should have known over a decade ago or more, um, but it's just coming around to that. So. There, again, there's still just a lot that um, you can't predict.
0: And uh, we will be looking forward to your reporting in the future as we continue this conversation. You've been listening to Andrew Brown, who is the Com- C- Connecticut Mirror investigative reporter, and Dr. Reiner Lohman, who is the director of URI's Steep Research Center. Thank you both so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: I'm Katherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.